Good morning. It's good to be with you again this morning, sharing from Ephesians 5 today. Where we're going to be talking about imitation. Uh, imitation has kind of a negative connotation. Uh, we talk about uh, imitation leather. It's some form of plastic, right? If you have imitation wood, it's some form of plastic. <laughs> you have imitation food, which is often some form of plastic. <laughs> we do. We have imitation crab meat, right? Got imitation vanilla. And we got imitation cheese. Growing up, there were three kinds of cheese in my house. We had uh, cheddar, we had Monterey Jack, and we had American cheese food. (laughs) We had American cheese food because it was cheap. And the FDA says that cheese food has to be 51% cheese. That means... It's up to 49% something else. (laughs) Cheese food. Used to love the stuff, you know? Used Used to think it was fantastic. You could play with it long enough, it turns into a sort of a putty, and you could roll it into a ball, and then you had a cheese ball. It's delicious, it's wonderful. I loved it until I learned what cheese was actually supposed to be. Uh, My wife is mistakenly uh, convinced that I'm actually secretly a better cook than she is. I'm not really. The only secret to my cooking is that I add cheese to everything. (laughs) Right? You want to get your kids to eat their scrambled eggs? You add cheese. Right? There's a reason that the recipes I'm most known for are pizza And mac and cheese. Because I can add extra cheese. Uh, The first time I made mac and cheese for my family, it was just a few years ago, actually, and I I just got a hankering for it. You know, the the kind of mac and cheese that my mom made when we were kids. Not the stuff that comes out of a box, but the actual mac and cheese made from individual elements in the pantry and the refrigerator that come together and they go into the oven a lot of times, you know, with like the ground up Ritz crackers on top. You remember that? <coughs> Made that for my family and I pulled it out and I set it on the table and initially they had no idea what to do with it because it wasn't bright fluorescent orange. <laughs> right? Because we've grown so accustomed to thinking that's what mac and cheese looks like. Now it's a family favorite. We make it fairly often. We've learned a little bit more about what cheese is supposed to be. Not imitation cheese. When you make the stuff that comes in the box, you know that it's imitation cheese because you mix milk and butter with this orange salty powder. And so you pretty much know that's Not what cheese is supposed to look like. Kind of like Velveeta. Velveeta's got to be one of the strangest food substances we sell, right? Velveeta is sort of this 
uh, cheese-flavored gelatin. <laughs> and I have to confess, I have to confess, there are some dishes made with Velveeta that I actually like. I have a friend that makes a Frito pie with Velveeta that is sort of a guilty pleasure of mine. But anytime I'm eating Velveeta, there's a part of me, there's a, there's a message playing in the back of my mind that says, don't swallow. <laughs> right? Like chewing gum. Remember they used to tell us about chewing gum? Don't swallow that or be in your intestine for seven years. I always feel that way, like Velveeta, I should just chew it, get the flavor out of it, and then spit it out. (laughs) This is one understanding that we have of imitation. Imitation is to be an artificial version of something, but to clearly not actually be that thing. But there's a different understanding of imitation. Growing up, uh, I went to church with my family. My father was a deacon in the small church that we attended, and he would usually sit on the front row. And I would sit there next to him. And I remember when he would bow to pray, when we would have a congregational prayer, he would bow and he'd put his thumb on his temple and and two fingers on his forehead. And I learned to copy him, to do that same motion. And I would pray the same way my father would. And he would run his finger along the verse as we read from the Bible. And so I would pick up my Bible and I would run my finger along the verse. And I I learned to hold my hymnal the way that he held his hymnal. And the little old ladies in the church, the little old church ladies, they, they didn't call me Doug. They called me Little Joe because I had the look and the mannerisms of my father. You see, there's... An imitation that is intended to be an artificial copy of a thing. And there is an imitation that's characterized by a desire to become that which we emulate. That is the imitation that Paul needs to teach us about today. He says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, he says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because we are, or you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let me just pull a couple of things out here. First off, because we are his children. Paul says we can imitate God because we are his children. Not just because children tend to imitate their parents. But because a child's imitation of his parent is legitimate. It's not artificial. In some ways, we are intended to grow up to be like dad, to be like mom. We are a chip off of the old block. We are made of the same substance and the same character. It is not artificial to want to be like our human parents. And because we are now children of God, it is not artificial for us to want to be just like our Father. You remember Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan back in the day, back when atheists were tame? Carl Sagan has passed on now, and 
I imagine he's walking back some of his statements right now about how there's not much evidence for God. Carl Sagan was famous for saying that we are made of star stuff. Our bodies are made of star stuff. There are pieces of star within us all. Ooh. (laughs) Kind of a fanciful way of saying the building blocks of the universe are all the same. Whether we're talking about stars, planets, comets, or you and I. The building blocks are all the same. But in a very real way, we're selling ourselves short with that recognition. In a very real way, we are all made of star maker stuff. Not so much in substance, but certainly in character, we are meant to be the image of God on earth. We are star maker stuff. Like our own offspring are an extension of ourselves. We are created as an image. We are created as a reflection of God. Genesis 1.27 tells us that we were created in God's image. And it is intrinsic to our purpose to grow up to be like our maker. Paul says, live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. It's, it's a theme that's going to carry us through the rest of our study of Ephesians. It's a theme, frankly, that, that weaves itself into all of Paul's writing. This idea that Christ is our example and that we're going to follow that example. He's going to apply it to our fellowship. He's going to apply it to evangelism, to marriage, to commerce, literally everything. What does it really mean to, to love the way that Christ loves? Well, Paul says, look, he offered himself as a sacrifice. I, I really wish he hadn't said that. Christian apologist uh, G.K. Chesterton is famous for saying, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found, it has been found difficult and not tried. That applies this morning. When I think about loving like Jesus loves, I find that difficult. I find that almost impossible. His example is so perfect. And I'm so not. I find it difficult. I'm tempted, as I guess we all are, one extent or another, to to excuse myself from that responsibility. To love the way that the world loves. The world really should be good at love, when you think about it, because we're obsessed with it. We talk about it all the time. We sing all our songs about it. All of our television programs and movies, all the entertainment that we watch always has some kind of love storyline. Even if it's an action flick, there's got to be a love interest, right? It's just woven into everything that we do, everything we talk about. We're totally fascinated by love. 
And we'd do anything to have it. To love, to be loved, to be in love. We aspire to this with everything that we are. But, if we listen carefully to all the things that we have to say about love, I think we inevitably come to the conclusion that the way that the world loves is about what we feel, and we overwhelmingly want to feel good. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel good, but it gives us kind of a shallow version of what love is really about. My daughter, Maddie, was born. She had a a failure-to-thrive issue. Never really got a diagnosis beyond that. It was just a failure to thrive. Her muscle tone wasn't developing. She wasn't eating her food, drinking, taking her bottle. And so we were at University Hospital, and we were... We were trying to get answers, and we were trying to resolve this terrible problem, and we were in NICU. It ended up being not that significant of a thing. She kind of just grew out of it. But at the time, loving my daughter didn't feel good, right? It was hard. It was hard. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't give up on it. But there's a part of us that knows, don't we? That real love has got to be more than just feeling good. That real love requires something different from us. The way that the world loves, the impression that we might get if we just listen to what the world has to say about love, is one, that love is personal gratification. It's an experience of some positive emotion. We just want to feel good. That love is agreement and validation. We have this notion in our culture right now that that love is sort of permissional. If you love me, you will. And of course, this love is temporal. Because the right offense will bring it crashing down around you. And we're increasingly confronted culturally with the idea that love is sort of the unqualified endorsement of anything and everything that I might want to do. The mere suggestion of any sort of correction or any sort of moral standard is immediately labeled as unloving. Isn't Jesus all about love? How often have we heard that lately? Isn't Jesus all about love? Well, just think about this for a minute. If we applied the world's definition of love to a tragic situation, for instance, if someone blindfolded you and sent you walking out into traffic, if I applied the world's definition of love, here's what I might say to you. If it makes you feel good to be there, then this is what I want for you. If you're hit by a bus, at least you will know that I loved you enough to let you find your own way. You see, it's all well and good to protect the feelings and respect the experiences of others. 
But it's a mistake to assume that that's all there is to love. We experience love primarily as an emotion, but that's not really at all the way Paul describes it. Again, he says if you're going to love like Jesus, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. He kind of expands on that in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider himself in equality with God, uh, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. John says, John 3.16, we all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see the pattern here? The love of Jesus is demonstrated. It's lived. It's acted upon. Real love creates a willingness to serve something else. We could say it creates a willingness to serve something greater than ourselves, but in the case of Jesus, it creates a willingness to serve something lesser than himself, even to the point of sacrifice. If we're going to follow Paul's instructions here, we're going to have to learn a Jesus kind of love. You know, the groovy kind. Now we're going to learn a Jesus kind of love. And here's what we need to know about that. Jesus' love is primary. It's primary. It comes before anything else. In Romans 5, verse 6 through 8, says, Paul says, you, you see, at just the right time, we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the message there is that God's love, Jesus' love, came first. It didn't wait for us. This is the very definition of what it means for love to be unconditional. It doesn't wait for us to get it right. It doesn't wait for us to come around. It's already there. Before we know that we have a need for it, Jesus is loving us. But Jesus' love is also redemptive. It refuses to leave us where we are. It has a place to take us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Several years ago, uh, Lisa and I were at a National Pastors Convention and I was attending this panel discussion. It was a panel discussion set up with, with some leaders of uh, various uh, traditions of the Christian church. Uh, the ones that I remember most clearly, there was, a, there was a leader there from the mainline churches, and there was a, a, a Catholic leader, and there was a leader from uh, evangelical Christian tradition. And it was a discussion really about what we needed to learn from each other. And I remember, I don't remember much from the discussion, but, but one thing that stood out in my mind, there, there was a woman there uh, representing the mainline churches. Her name was Phyllis Tickle, which is just fun to say. <laughs> Phyllis Tickle. 
was asked the question, what do mainline churches and evangelical churches need to learn from each other? And she recounted to us the story from John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. You know the story. This angry group brings this woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And they're going to use this as a test for him. They say, look, the law says we can, we can put her to death. So what do you have to say about it? And you remember Jesus doesn't say anything for a bit. He gets down, he starts scribbling in the sand. Eventually he says, okay, whichever one of you is innocent, you start. And they all drop their stones and walk away. And at the end of that story, he turns to this woman and he says, does no one condemn you? She says, no. And he says, well, then I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And Phyllis said, we in the mainline churches have been really good at the neither do I condemn you. But you in the evangelical churches have been really good at the go and sin no more. What we have to understand about loving like Jesus is that we can't be one or the other. We have to be both. Because that's how Jesus loves. His love is unconditional and His love is redemptive. His love is also incarnational. That's one of those $10 theology words we used just to indicate that He came in the flesh. He became flesh. John 1 and 14, the Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know what a remarkable component of the Christian Gospel this is? That Jesus came in the flesh. You know, you find other world religions where we, we take people and raise them up as gods. But it's unusual to have a system of faith based on the idea that God humbled himself to become a man. God chooses to walk among us. He chooses to share our burdens. He chooses to become our example. He presents Himself. Essentially, the incomprehensible God presents Himself in a form that we can comprehend. He wants us to know Him. In fact, He says to His disciples, if you know Me, you know the Father. His love is also sacrificial. That's something that Paul points out to us in this very passage. Makes a distinction here between offering and sacrifice. We don't often make this distinction. But I think it's probably an important one. We know that Jesus sacrificed Himself. But He also says that Jesus offered Himself. As closely related as they are, they're two different things. To sacrifice, of course, is to give oneself up for the good of another. But to offer is to know that that sacrifice will be required and to proceed anyway. 
Paul says this is a sweet aroma to God. The offer. And let's face it. The love of Jesus is also subversive. If you truly encounter the love of Jesus, it is to be transformed. To be undeniably changed. The love of Jesus challenges our assumptions. challenges our beliefs about goodness. It challenges our understanding of ourselves and the world around us. The love of Jesus, we might say, is a vast angel wing conspiracy. And then Paul says, in essence, join the conspiracy. What does it mean for us to have a Jesus kind of love? Well, it means we love first and ask questions later. Jesus loves first, so we have to love first also. And Jesus really is all about love. And it may not be love the way that the world understands it, but he really is all about love. Jesus is the one who counsels us to love even our enemies. Imagine for a moment how powerful that message would be for the Ephesian church. You may remember from earlier in this study that the gospel encounters prejudice almost immediately. It is disliked and distrusted. There is persecution. They know this persecution. It's real. So when Jesus counsels those under persecution to love their enemies, He's asking them to show love the way that He shows love. To love those who are still standing against Him. Jesus loves first. If we're going to love as He loves, we will also love first. And we will redeem what is broken. Last time I got to speak to you, it was about putting off the old life and putting on Christ. It's about escaping all of that brokenness, all of that deception. And I want to challenge us with the idea that putting off falsehood is not merely about putting off the falsehood that's within me. but It's about rejecting the falsehood that is intrinsic to my society. The falsehood that is around us. Disciples have to stand up for the truth. We have to be a light in the darkness. And we live in a culture that increasingly chooses its own truths. And sort of browbeats anyone who challenges their assumptions. And that's a little scary. And and, and a lot of times now, even when Christians do stand up for what's right... Their fellow Christians will chime in and talk about how, well, that's judgmental and that's unloving and that's unchristian. And you wonder, well, what are we supposed to do? What is a believer supposed to do? Well, if we love as Jesus loves, and we will love full of grace and truth. Full of it. Not a mix, not 50-50, but complete grace and complete truth. 
I've been a student of this idea for many years, but I would be a hypocrite this morning if I didn't confess to you that I'm lousy at it. See, when we confront what is false around us, the natural reaction, maybe the safe reaction or the reaction that makes us feel safe, is to become indignant, to become angry. If I'm going to follow the example of Jesus, though, I'm going to do something very different, something really remarkable. I'm going to take a stand for the truth, and yet I'm going to be absolutely graceful about it. I'm going to love the person that stands in opposition to what I have to say. Not an easy thing to do, but an important thing to do. Or as Phyllis would say, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. There's something right, but I'll love you even if you reject it. We may feel a little bit powerless right now in our cultural context. But I want to challenge us with the idea that there is great power. There is great power in having absolute love and absolute truth in harmony. It's changed the world more than once. We will also make it tangible. You know, ours is a God who shows up. He lives among us. He's not, this love that He has for us, it's it's not distant and theoretical. It's not purely emotional. Paul doesn't say, for God so loved the world that He had warm, fuzzy feelings about us every time He thought of us. He says, no, He did something. He sent His Son. He made it personal. He made it immediate. He made it physical. He made it tangible. Paul challenges us to imitate God, but specifically in this, in the love of Jesus. This is the core of Christian discipleship. To imitate as a son imitates his father. To become as Jesus Christ. Alan Hirsch, my favorite author, calls it a conspiracy of little Jesuses. That's what the church is. A conspiracy of little Jesuses. You see, if Jesus is the incarnation of God, then we must be the incarnation of Jesus. We must give the story flesh. We must give His love arms and legs hands and feet. We must be to the world who Jesus has been to us. A conspiracy of little Jesuses. And we must give it our all. You know, the early Christians in the Roman Empire, this idea of sacrifice was not theoretical. It was real. Following Jesus could be life-threatening. The fact that they make that decision anyway is one of the greatest testimonies that we have for the truth of the gospel. Now, we may never be called upon to give our life. 
But we will definitely be called upon to live our life for the kingdom, for Christ. Sacrifice is possible, but it is the offer, the offer of my life that is a sweet aroma in God's nostrils. Perhaps we grow more aware of forces around us that would react to the truth by trying to destroy us. I want you to think about this for a minute. Our assumption has been for the past many years now in in, in the church, our assumption has been that if we did absolutely everything right, if we did it all the right way, we would be liked. And we do so like to be liked. Sometimes we try so hard to be liked, we become an imitation instead of an imitator. Like Kraft Mac and Cheese. We're easy, we're brightly colored, we're packaged for the masses. But if we're not real, if we're not authentic, if we're not true to the character of Jesus, we haven't really accomplished anything. In John 15, 18, 19, uh, Jesus has this to say. After he says that the, that the greatest love that, that we could have is to lay our lives down for another, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We don't belong here. We answer to a different king. And as many friends as we make along the way, because we answer to a different king, because we belong to a different kingdom, the world will hate us if we get everything right. But Jesus also says in the next chapter, in verse 33, he says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, because I've already overcome the world. The world is not your problem. Which leads us into this last point. We need to be subversive. We need to be subversive. You see, nothing alters darkness so quickly and so completely as light. And truth and grace, those full measures of righteousness and love, that is a combination that will light the darkest corners of the world. You have to remember that our gospel is unexpected. We have this God this creator of the universe who shows up as a baby in a stable. We have the king of kings who doesn't ride into town on a white stallion. He rides in on a donkey. We have this great redeemer who buys our life by surrendering his own. No life has ever been more undeserved, Unlikely, unexpected as the life of Jesus Christ. 
And if we're going to love like him, we'll be just as unlikely and just as unexpected. Be ye therefore imitators of God. Make his story alive in us. Make his love alive in us. Make his gospel alive in us. Today we observe this very simple ceremony. A very unlikely remembrance in which we recall this remarkable story of a Savior who is born, who lives, who surrenders his own life to redeem ours, and who rises up again from the grave. We remember his sacrifice, his broken body, and his blood. We are called upon to remember this story so that we can imitate it, so that we can become a part of it. We imitate the Savior, Paul says, in his life and in his death so that we can also imitate him in his resurrection.